Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this podcast, we take a look at the recent imbroglio involving the Bon and Viv commercial that aired on the Super Bowl and the end user of the commercial, Anheuser Bush. Bush got into trouble because of one of the parties far down the supply chain, the casting director or the casting company agency rather, engaged in sexual harassment and perhaps even bullying. Matt uses this to explore how we are looking at supply chain risk in an incorrect manner because in today's social media world, supply chain risk is a mesh. We talk about how the old model of supply chain worked, how the reputational risk model works now, how compliance programs are in this mesh, and what you can do should you find yourself embroiled as Anheuser-Busch does now. It's a fascinating exploration of a current topic and something that you will need to face as a compliance professional. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for yet another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Uh, today, we are going to go down a very long or short rabbit trail, depending on your perspective. Uh, it's based upon a blog post Matt posted today entitled Supply Chain Risk. You're looking at it wrong. It started on Super Bowl Sunday. Actually, it started a year before Super Bowl Sunday, but it certainly uh, amplified during Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, we're still talking about it. So with that uh, somewhat enigmatic um, introduction, Matt, you want to set the stage? Sure, yeah. Hi, Tom. So um, this idea for this post came to me over the weekend. Uh, I was reading a New York Times article about a advertisement that happened on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, for Bon and Viv's spiked seltzer. Now, I have to admit, while I did watch the Super Bowl, uh, this ad I did not recall watching. And um, now that I've seen it on YouTube, it does strike me as rather unmemorable and unfunny. But the actual story is that uh, this ad for the seltzer uh, featured two actresses who were mermaids, and they were talking about the wonders of their spike seltzer. But uh, last fall, a article appeared on Vice.com by an actress by the name of Ingrid Haas. And Ingrid talked about how she had auditioned for a commercial where she was going to be allegedly one of two mermaids for an alcohol beverage company. Now, she never mentioned the actual company back then, but it has since come to light after 
uh, the Super Bowl ad aired that Ingrid Haas was writing about Bonn and Viv, which is a subsidiary of Anheuser-Busch. And Ingrid Haas's complaint was that when she got the casting call to go and try out for this role, uh, she was told that she had to uh, first appear in a bikini and then had to dance for 30 seconds in the bikini. Uh, never mind that if you look at the commercial, and I have a link to that on my blog post uh, here, uh, the mermaids are, first off, they're not dancing. Secondly, they're not wearing bikinis, and dancing in bikinis had nothing to do with what this commercial was actually about. So here she is, this actress, being told you need to dance in a bikini to some sort of strip club song called Milkshake from back in the 2000s. Um, and she said to the casting director, that is rather demeaning, and he said, well, that's life in corporate America. Get used to it. Needless to say, she did not like that. She walked off the set and she wrote this rather blistering article on Vice.com about still sexist, boorish behavior in the entertainment industry. And that was in December or November. Uh, now along comes the Super Bowl ad. And suddenly everybody puts two and two together that Anheuser-Busch's subsidiary had shot this commercial where the casting agent was such a jerk and they have this demeaning attitude about women. And this all blows up on social media. What does this say about Anheuser-Busch? And my post kind of explored this supply chain reputation risk incident when, in all likelihood, Anheuser-Busch had no idea any of this was happening until it blew up on social media this week. And that's where we can get into the weeds. But uh, that's that's the lay of the that's the preliminaries here. That's the pregame. So, so the um, I did see the ad. And uh, when I saw the ad, it struck me as not something you really see, uh, certainly on Super Bowl Sunday anymore, where it was uh, pretty clear that um, uh, girls, uh, scantily clad women were being used to sell something, although I guess that's the definition of a mermaid. Um, Matt, there were several things that struck me about your blog post. Uh, the first one, the first two that jumped out, frankly, were the diagrams. Mm -hmm. And you diagrammed uh, in the first one typically how uh, the linkage in a downstream supply chain would work and how we got from consumers uh, consuming both Anheuser-Busch or the social media post down to the actress. And then you had a second diagram, which I thought was uh, perhaps even more enlightening, called reputational risk profile, which uh, really demonstrated in the amplified social media area what can happen. So I was wondering if you might take us through those two diagrams um, and really explain the difference and, and why the reputational risk profile is what compliance practitioners need to think about today. Yeah, that, that really, what got to me as I was reading this whole New York Times article about, and then the Vice article too, and they're both worth reading, uh, about how all of this happened is let's sketch out the supply chain that got this commercial produced. Uh, so we had party number one are the consumers out there who are consuming beer from Anheuser-Busch. So that's party number two, which has this subsidiary of Bonn and Viv and their Spike Seltzer, which is, okay, that's party number three. And then it needed a commercial. So it hired a production company. So that's party number four. They need actresses. So they contracted with a casting agency, party number five, which finally had this uh, casting call with Ingrid Haas, party number six. So we have at least five links of the chain between Anheuser-Busch 
and the actress, Ingrid Haas, who suffered this sort of misconduct. Um, and then it, conceivably at six, if you want to include Anheuser-Busch's customers, the consumers. But to get all of this done operationally, like any big company, Anheuser-Busch set up a chain. So that was my figure number one. We have this chain that goes all around. But what struck me was that when Ingrid Haas was mistreated, by the casting agency. So this really is misconduct that is somewhere between the fourth and fifth or si fifth and sixth parties to Anheuser-Busch, depending on your perspective, but it's far down the supply chain. Um, when this happened to her, she took her concerns to social media. Really, she posted this on Vice and then everybody talked about it. And then this week, everyone was talking about it again. Um, and she just short-circuited the whole idea of a supply chain when it comes to misconduct and reputation risk. To get things done operationally, sure, you have this nice chain, but for risk management in the social media age where any part of that chain could experience misconduct and then the aggrieved party blows it up on social media, that simultaneously affects all other parts of the chain all at once. So that led me to think that really the supply chain isn't the right metaphor for risk management in the supply chain, for reputation risk especially. So I came up with really what I called a mesh. And if you look at it on the blog post, the reputation risk profile, it's decidedly more messy than a very neat supply chain of six steps. The six are still there, but really you have arrows connecting all six both ways to every other party. It's much more complex, but that's the threat that comes along with reputation risk in the supply chain in our modern social media era. Now, I didn't write about this in the post, but let's pretend that um, this happened to Ingrid Haas in say 1985, before social media and the internet. Uh, and she got this really kind of sexist, boorish attitude from a casting agent. Is that uncomfortable? Yes. Is it misconduct? I think so, it seems to fit it to me. Would anybody in the greater world have heard about that? Would Anheuser-Busch have heard about that? No, because back then, something, misconduct that was so far down that supply chain, it couldn't be seen. Well, nobody would see it. But in today's social media world where anyone can blow this up, and that's what happened, you can see all of this misconduct when it becomes a negative reputation event, as we like to say. I think actually, Tom, I heard you use that phrase once, and I think it's a, a wonderful term of art. Um, but as I have said before, social media does not, it's not a risk that companies have unto itself. Social media magnifies the risks your company already has. We all know that misconduct in the supply chain is a risk your company has. We spend zillions of dollars thinking about code of conduct certifications and supplier codes and inspections and audits and monitoring and all of that, because we know that that misconduct is, is somewhere out there, four or five, six levels down, but we can't see it. Well, social media magnifies that risk that somebody somewhere is going to blow it all up and it's going to splatter across all parties all at once, which is exactly what happened. Um, I even do feel a bit for Anheuser-Busch because, Tom, you and I talked about them just a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, Anheuser-Busch devotes some serious money to its oversight of third parties. And still, the nature of reputation risk these days, especially in social media, makes it so hard to 
control because it can come to you from any direction at any point in your supply chain. It jumps the chain. And that's that's what happened here. So let me turn to uh, really the third part I would identify from your blog post, which is the uh, control activities and the importance of reputational surveillance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me first ask you, could you define reputational surveillance? Well, media monitoring, um, you know, if your company is large enough that it has a PR function or a media relations department, they do this. They know that phrase. Um, you know, just monitoring what people say about your firm um, on the like anywhere, really in the news, on social media, on the Internet, um, media, rep, rep, media monitoring, reputation management. There are firms actually that will do this for you if you want to pay them a fee. And if a compliance officer out there listening is not familiar with how all this works, like I said, if you go and you talk to your corporate communications or media relations people, or if your company has a PR firm, like they know this, they know how to do it. I suspect many companies don't do this as much as they should, but that's what it is. So, okay, uh, thank you, because I really didn't understand what that was. But now in the control activities, um, You've got, um, let me see if I can just quote it here. So if the company can provide the audit trail of certification, attestations, training, and so forth, it can demonstrate a good faith effort to push standards of ethical conduct down the supply chain. Um, I think we're both familiar with uh, AB InBev mm-hmm. and uh, feel that they uh, they do uh, provide lots of, of resources and uh, lead in many ways around compliance. Yet, even if they had these things, um, I'm frankly not sure they would have been protected. Well, I drew a distinction between what the company does to try and prevent all of these risks and what actually happens when a reputation risk because of some misconduct further down the supply chain, what actually happens. So something blows up on social media and uh, Tom, you'll be shocked to hear this, but occasionally something blows up on social media that is not correct. And uh, uh, people reach the wrong conclusions and then they stick with them anyways. But what do the consumers actually do is they don't go around thinking some specific control activity failed at your extended enterprise that, you know, your code certification for suppliers must have just been awful and your risk monitoring must be terrible. That is not what they think. They don't look at the activities. They look at the broader control environment and they make a conclusion about it. And because consumers these days are quite distrustful of business, they're going to hear about this on social media and just automatically assume, oh, the whole control environment at that company must be terrible. Those leaders don't care. They're jerks. And, you know, everybody is out for themselves, you know, th- that same sort of mentality. And I think, frankly, all of us are probably guilty of making those assumptions about other companies from time to time, right or wrong. But that's what a consumer will jump to. The conclusion is that the control environment at the company in question, the big parent company, that must be the fault. And that's why they don't know what's going on in their supply chain, even when that is probably wrong. Because in the actual operation of it, most companies are these days pretty good at trying to govern a lot of the misconduct that happens in their supply chain. Um, Harassment and workplace bullying and whatnot, I think we're probably less sophisticated at that. 
But, you know, Tom, we can go back to AB InBev, which is the ultimate owner of Anheuser-Busch. Um, AB InBev does great work looking at how to govern its anti-corruption concerns in its supply chain. And they've got some very sophisticated data analysis so they can figure out, here's this thing that's happening. Do we have any exposure to it two or three or four steps away? Um, and then if you can do that, if you can see here's this negative reputation risk out there, what is our exposure? You have to be able to tie that back to what are the actual control activities you did? What did you try to do? And you have to be able to summon that up very quickly to show on social media. Um, yes, this might have happened from the casting agency nine steps away from us, but we already have a supplier code of conduct, which we push out to all people, which the production company should have signed. And, you know, do can you conjure up what that signature attestation actually was? Does that say, and we too will push this down on our third parties, which are the parent company's fourth parties and so on and so forth. You know, how do you connect that reputation risk event that's bubbling up on social media to the control activities your company has already done? Um, in anti-corruption context, I think that's actually pretty well understood. If I said, you know, if I was the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, and I knocked on your door and said, I have an FCPA investigation. I heard about this rumor of you in the Middle East. What have you done? A good compliance program would say, ah, well, funny. Here you go, Mr. Rosenstein. Here's all of our stuff. Here's our training. Here's our manuals. Here's our policies. Here's our monitoring program. You have to be able to do that same sort of matching your activities to the allegation at hand. Now, with other sort of supply chain misconduct um, and to be able then to defuse or at least be more resilient to the storm that comes on social media. I think we're very good at it in anti-corruption or we're more mature about it in anti-corruption than anything else. A lot of companies are also good at it on sanctions and possibly even cybersecurity. But workplace harassment and bullying that might happen among your third parties that ultimately make a product you give to consumers. And that's really what happened here with the Anheuser-Busch and this commercial. Um, I don't know that we are as mature on that, but like, this is the world, man. Social media is not going to go away. And right or wrong, people will make these sort of blow-ups and um, firestorms happen on social media, and companies have to think about it. Man, it strikes me that what you have described is – and a fully operationalized compliance program, uh, because it strikes me that a corporate compliance officer would have little to perhaps even no ability to um, have found out about the blog post uh, by Ingrid Haas in Vice, that, that yep. someone closer to that arena, someone closer to that discipline would have to have monitored and or found out about that to even begin to connect the dots to the casting agency back up to the production company and that uh, yet uh, the business reason or perhaps even more practical reason why you have to push down compliance literally to the front lines uh, then reporting back up to compliance. Yeah, exactly. Um you know, as I wrote this post and I was thinking more about reputation risk and workplace bullying and cyber um, and supply chain risk, you know, at the start of that post. But then towards the end, when I was getting back to the bottom of, you know, really, what must you be able to do 
you have to be able to monitor reputation risks out there and tie back any rumors and allegations to what specifically you have done to try and prevent that. Well, like we've been doing that in anti-corruption for 10 years, and that's not news. Um, really, what this is, is taking a lot of those practices and uh, applying them to these new types of risk that have always been there, but social media magnifies them. Um, and I think that we are going to you know, have a bit of a learning curve here, especially because, as I said before, a lot of stuff that's on social media is not fair. It's not accurate, but it takes root and people then believe it. And the company is somewhat stuck between a rock and a hard place. I am not saying that conjuring up all of these control activities and this all this evidence and documentation would suddenly make everyone on Twitter say, oh, our bad. The company really is great. That's probably not going to happen, but you would stand a better chance of weathering the storm. And social media, I think we still as a society are trying to figure out how to control what are some very big storms that we can conjure up pretty quick. And um, But it, really, more than anything else, what struck me was that these storms, they don't follow that supply chain uh, strategy that we use for actual operations. Like storms come out of nowhere. They jump the chain and you still have to deal with them. Well, Matt, it's been a uh, it's a fascinating uh, story and cautionary tale that I think um, probably uh, this would make a great presentation to a group of compliance professionals and business executives as to uh, what can go wrong um, without the proper compliance controls in place to demonstrate to a variety of stakeholders, the public, the government, your own employees. Uh, your board of directors, that you have engaged in the appropriate behavior and have the the right controls in place, even if uh, at some point they failed. Yeah. Matt and I today have been visiting about his blog post, Supply Chain Risk. You're looking at it wrong. It deals with the uh, fallout from the uh, Bev and Viv uh, podcast, excuse me, uh, advertisement, Bon and Viv uh, advertisement that first aired on uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, we're going to have to follow this one, Matt. All right, Tom. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance in the Weeds. If you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll uh, read Matt's blog post. It's a really interesting uh, look at something that I think is going to become more prevalent for the compliance practitioner. Matt and I will be off next week as I'm going to be on assignment in the United Kingdom, but we'll be back in two weeks, and I hope you'll join us when we get back together to take a look at a deep-dive topic of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.